It is about listening to your people, understanding what it is that they're facing, and to then, at potentially great cost, meet the need. Hello, welcome to Sweat the Technique, a podcast all about how we get better, faster. I'm Ravi Gupta, the CEO of Lost Debate and a co-host of Sweat the Technique podcast. And we're a bunch of former educators and sometimes current educators who had a lot of results for kids when we ran schools. And now we're applying those lessons to all aspects of life. How do we become better parents? How do we get better in relationships? How do we build businesses? How do we learn hobbies? And my guest today is somebody who just lived that. So my guest is Mark Manella, who was a leader of KIPP schools in Philadelphia and went on now and has been coaching professional sports teams, including the Cleveland Guardians and the Philadelphia Eagles. And so he's one of those people who really lives the mission of this podcast. And so we talk all about, hey, like, what did he learn within schools? How did he apply that to training camps for football players or practices for baseball players or the use of statistics, how coaches talk to their players, etc. And so this is a really fascinating conversation. And if you're a sports nut or an education nut or just somebody who's trying to develop your people, you'll get a lot out of this. So let's jump right in. Well, Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Robbie. Well, Mark, how'd you get into education in the first place? So I did Teach for America right out of college. wasn't necessarily uh, the plan to stay, have a 20-year career in education. It was more like, hey, for, for two years while I'm figuring stuff out, maybe I'll give this a go. And then, you know, I w- it was probably about maybe October of my first year where I knew, hey, I'm not sure exactly where, I'm not sure exactly in what capacity, but education and specifically education in what we were calling at the time underserved communities. That was it. Like that was where I wanted to put both feet on the ground and try and do my best to to help. And so after two years doing Teach for America in Baltimore, I then moved to Philadelphia, did a couple of years here in Philly in the classroom. And that was when I I was fortunate enough to meet the folks at KIPP and where I was recruited into their school leadership program. And so spent a year basically doing training, uh, trying to get like a crash course in how to not only be a principal, but also how do you start a nonprofit from scratch? Because there was there was no infrastructure here in Philadelphia to run a KIPP school. We were It was me um, and my laptop. And then eventually we recruited a board. We found a building. We got permission from the district. We recruited the teachers. We recruited the kids. And a, a year after starting that one-year fellowship with KIPP, we opened KIPP Philadelphia Charter School. 95th graders in, 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 a, in a, basically a, an abandoned community center in North Philadelphia. And so for people who aren't familiar with KIPP, what is KIPP? Yep. So KIPP stands for the Knowledge is Power Program. And it was one of the first of these charter schools that were trying to prove that something very different was possible for our nation's kids, predominantly who are growing up in either the inner city or in rural communities where the public school districts have been struggling for a really long time to give them the quality of school that they deserve. And so uh, the first KIPP school started in Houston, Texas, and then they built a second one in the Bronx. And I was part of like a, maybe like a wave about a decade after those schools started of replication where we were realizing, hey, you know, this school is getting the kind of results with their students that we haven't really seen before at a school-wide level in these communities. And, and so the uh, communities across the country were, were looking to add KIPP schools. And so I was the head of the first KIPP school here in Philadelphia back in 2003. And that's when that school opened. Okay. And so you start with one grade level at a time and you're a school principal relatively young, right? How old did you say you were at this point? Yeah, I was 27 when the school opened. So very young. So about the same age that I was, I think I was around the same age when I started Nashville Prep. 
And so you, you know, you've got to build credibility both with your teachers and with students. How did you go about that? A handful of ways. One was I was going to show that like I was, no one was going to outwork me. Nobody was going to care more about it. Nobody was going to pour their heart and soul more than me. I was looking for people who were going to do the same, right? I was looking for, for teachers who wanted to roll up their sleeves and work incredibly hard. Showing that you were willing to invest the time that it took to build the relationships with every child, with every family, with every teacher, with every janitor, with every single member of our school community so that you can have, you can establish the trust so that you can build these trust-based relationships so that we, we can do the work that we ended up doing. If anything, it was, you know, I did not have a, a, a secret code. I did not have a, a pixie dust that I could sprinkle over everybody's head. I was just going to roll my sleeves and I was going to work my tail off. And in the end, you know, I, I, I think that that gets a lot harder when you're 27 and, and you're single. Like, you're just like, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> and how long did you serve as a principal? So I was a principal of that school for five years. After that, I moved into what we call, you know, here in Pennsylvania, they call it the, the CEO role, where we decided, uh, our board decided we were going to add more campuses. And so I assumed sort of like a, what you would equate to like a superintendent or an executive director. So I moved into this role, sitting over the top of the principal at the flagship school. And then we added schools two, three, and four in pretty quick succession in the early 2010s, 2008, 2009, 2010, like that. And then, you know, we had plans to grow to 10 schools, but the politics changed, became really much more difficult to add additional schools here in Philadelphia. And so um, for a while, we were at four schools. But by the time I left in 2018, we were at six campuses serving about 2,000 kids, about 200 teachers. A $30 million budget around there. Now, did you like doing the, the school principal job more or the CEO superintendent role? That's a, a question that uh, reveals, I think, that you know a little bit something about this kind of work. Yeah. <laughs> I have strong feelings about it. Yeah. That. I love being a principal. That executive was sort of like one step above the principal. And then eventually I was like four or five layers of leadership between me and principals. The, I, I've never had a job I liked as much as I like being a principal. Yeah, I agree. I Principal was definitely the best job I've ever had. And superintendent is probably the least favorite job I've ever had. I did not enjoy doing that role at all. And I, I like knowing people's names, the students. I, I like the tactile experience of being principal. I compare it often, and maybe this is this hits close to home given what you do now. I used to compare it to like an athletic experience being a principal. It's like a, it's a very physically demanding job and one where you have to think on your feet and make quick decisions. And it's all depends on your personality. But for me, I, I found that way more fulfilling. Yeah, I agree. I, I had a similar experience. I think for me, the, the relationships are what drove me in, in so many ways and what inspired me and what motivated me. And I still had relationships they were just different they weren't with kids and families anymore now it was with like attorneys and lobbyists and right uh you know it's just not as fun yeah <laughs> yes yeah. you get to know your attorney you definitely get to know your attorneys really well in that nothing against attorneys but like I, that's not why i got into the work you get you know many first running schools depositions you know all these types of things but uh so you come out of this experience running your school and then training leaders at that point like when you're when you're building your model of what makes a great leader in schools, like give us the high level, like what are not obvious traits and characteristics that you looked for at the time for leaders? For me, as we were developing our leaders, there were a handful of things that, that mattered to us most. I think maybe one of the first ones was like, you couldn't convince somebody that they wanted to be a leader. Like we couldn't look at that person like, ooh, they should be in a leadership role. And so now I'm going to compel them 
or I'm going to sway them and, and convince them they should do it. Like there had to be like a level of want to, right? I think the second thing we were looking for was people who knew that they had not arrived. People who were voracious learners, people who said like, man, I, 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 I understand that like I'm getting good over here, uh, but like I'm not done yet. I need to develop. I, I want to grow. So we were looking for people with that, just that, that 10 out of 10 on growth mindset type of person. We were looking for people who could build strong relationships, which, you know, there's more than one way to do that. And I think that the, you know, we've all read stuff about the myth of the charismatic leader and like, you know, for better or for worse, I was kind of that person who was very comfortable with the spotlight on the, being the center of attention and, and, you know, was the person who had the big personality and trying to help people understand, like, we weren't actually looking for those things. We were looking for people who took the work seriously, not necessarily took themselves seriously, but took the work seriously. We were looking for people who were committed. We were looking for people who were learners, but they didn't have to be the big, gregarious, sort of Sam Walton type. Like We were actually looking for a real diversity, not just in the way that we sometimes talk about diversity now in terms of racial diversity, but we were looking for like all different types. Um, and we were looking for that with our teachers too, right? Like we wanted our kids, if they were going to interface with five or six different teachers in a given day, we wanted them to have lots of different personality types, lots of different types of people that they were interfacing with because we know the importance of a, a child be able to make that connection with that one person. And so in a middle school or in a high school where you have all kinds of different teachers in a given day, it was our goal that like our kids would ex- would have the chance to interact with Somebody who loved sports, somebody who loved music, somebody who couldn't care less about sports but loved books. Like, you know, as their teachers, we weren't looking for, for a cookie cutter. And so that definitely applies to our leaders as well. And when you look back at the different leaders that I worked with at KIPP and, and who ended up leading our schools, there was no type. Uh, there, was, there was lots of different, uh, on the surface, lots of different types of people who ended up in those leadership jobs. The things they had in common, though, were sort of like the want to the commitment, the learning, and their belief that like relationships really makes the whole thing work. And so you transition at some point from running these schools to now starting your own company where you're coaching leaders. And so just tell me about how you even went about that process. Like how did you even find your first clients and you know, where you are today, like what kinds of leaders you're coaching right now? Sure. So I I decided that I was done at some level, right? Like I was tired. Uh, I also felt like we had hit a moment where we had just gotten permission, that growth plan for 10 schools. We had just gotten permission from the district to execute it. Um, We had just closed a capital campaign. There were a lot of things that lined up for me to say like, you know what, I think this is actually the moment where it's time for me to step aside um, and the person that the board found to take over has taken Kip Philadelphia to new heights and, and further, I think, than I could have. So eternally grateful for what we've done and, and for my ability to sort of be able to, to step back from it and to see the organization continue to thrive. It's a great feeling. But so, you know, knowing that I w- was going to leave, I knew uh, around November of 17, announced in like January of 18 publicly, but knew that like after, you know, 15 years of doing Kip Philadelphia that like it was going to be impossible for me to just like go into another job. At least that's how I felt at the time. And, and I think I was right. Like the idea that like pouring my heart and soul into something for 15 years and then like tomorrow I'll just get a new business card and a new office <laughs> and like have a new mission. Like it was just like, it was, it was too much. And so, you know, was fortunate that I had the support of my wife and by support, I mean, certainly moral and emotional support, but also she had health insurance. <laughs> That's convenient. Uh, yeah. Uh, that mattered. 
Um, so we worked together to say like, okay, so my last day of KIPP is going to be June 30. I'm going to take the summer and I'm not going to do anything. Um, I'm going to metaphorically throw my cell phone into the ocean. I wanted to literally do it. She wouldn't let me. Um, but like metaphorically throw the cell phone in the ocean for the summer. I grew this massive unwieldy beard and I, I just hung out with my then three-year-old kid. And it was great. We called it the summer of Mark. Um, and I just like unwound. For the first time, I just relaxed for probably the first time in, in 20 years. And then after that, I said, okay, I am going to have to start earning a living again. And so what I did was you know, the, the six months between my announcement in January and my last day on June 30, I basically just leveraged the heck out of my network. And so the Philly network, I, my goal was to have at least one breakfast, lunch, coffee, drinks after work, like just one connection every workday between the day of my announcement and, and June 30 to just basically ask people's advice for what they thought I should do next, knowing in the back of my head that the answer probably needed to be like, I need to go out on my own. Mm -hmm. um, but I was asking people's advice. What do you think? Like, what do you see? Um, and I was asking, again, everyone, people that we, uh, people in our, our funder base, people, uh, fellows, charter school CEOs, other people who ran nonprofits in Philly, people nationally uh, through the KIPP network and other networks that I've met over the years through Charter School Growth Fund and, and places like that. Just try to talk to as many people as possible. What do you think I should do next? And in that process, those conversations, A, affirmed to me that there were some things that I was pretty good at that I could potentially leverage in my next life, professional life. And two, the idea that like, there would be work for me if I if I were to, to to sort of hang that shingle and go out on my own. And so my first two clients could not have been more different, and neither of which were really what I thought I was going to get. So my first client was actually, I was the interim executive director of uh, what's called the Smith Playground and Playhouse. Uh, it's in Fairmont Park, the big park in the center of Philadelphia. And it's this 120-year-old building that was built. It was the first building in America that was built just to be a place for children to play. Hmm. It was like a it was like a response to, you know, the, the child labor that was happening in the 1800s, right? Um, and so this was just a place where kids could be kids. It, it used to be run as a private institution and the city took it over. And then, you know, about 20 years ago, it, it, a private board took it into like a, to be a more traditional nonprofit. And they had just lost their executive director. And I was friends with the chair of their board. And she was like, I need you to hold it down for us while we run our search for the next executive director. And so that was great because it was kind of a nice transition for me uh, to be an interim executive director. I was spending three days a week on site working for this place. So I kind of had a team again. I kind of had a mission, but I was only the interim. So, you know, I was just going to tell them that their books were messed up. Um, and I was going to say, good luck. Uh, I hope you fix your books. And then, you know, sort of step out. And then that also gave me two days a week to just continue to try and grow the business. Mm -hmm. Now, my second client, anchor client, was actually the Cleveland, then Indians, now Guardians. How the heck did that happen? How the heck did that happen? I ask myself that. What's the, the, the adage about, like, luck is the combination of, like, preparation and opportunity or something. I forget what it is. I think it's preparation meets opportunity. Yeah. Something like that. Right. Yeah. I butchered it. But the general idea here was like something sort of fell in our lap. So we didn't screw it up. So when I was at KIPP, the, the Eagles uh, hired a coach. Uh, if you know sports, you know the name Chip Kelly. If you don't course, know yeah. sports, then Chip Kelly is a bit of a renegade. He had a ton of success in college doing things untraditionally, came to the NFL, basically was there for two years, sort of wore out his welcome was escorted out of the building, and then the Eagles went on to hire their next coach who then won the Super Bowl, right? So Chip Kelly is this era in Philadelphia sports and for the Philadelphia Eagles that is not looked upon with great fondness by Eagles fans. 
but it is looked upon with great fondness by me because he read this book called The Culture Code by Dan Coyle. Love that book. Me, me too. And I've had the, the, the honor and the privilege of working with Dan a bunch because he is also a consultant for the Cleveland Guardian. So Chip reached out to Dan and his, through his people and said, hey, this chapter on Kip is fascinating because Kip basically convinces people that something different is possible. So in Culture Code, there's a book. It might have been Talent Code, actually, now I'm thinking about it. Yeah. So in the Talent Code, there's a chapter on Kip. They talk about the idea that you have basically, you, you get kids to believe something different is possible. And that's a lot of what we were doing at Kip. And Chip read this and said, look, that's what we need to do here with the Eagles is we need to convince all of these people that something different is possible. And so he asked to be connected with the Kip guys. And so they connected him with, with our national folks. Our national folks sent him to me. We had a lovely, couple of lovely exchanges about how do you convince people that something different is possible. We talked a lot about organizational culture. They came to our high school and, and spent the morning. Then we went to the Eagles practice complex, spent the morning. It was great. Ran, I thought that was it, right? But randomly, a couple months later, they called me up and said, we got to talk to you about this idea. When we went to your high school, we noticed that your high school kids were totally locked in on what their teachers were saying and what they were teaching. They were raising their hand. They were leaning forward in their seats. They were taking notes. They were participating, engaging in group discussions. When we look in our classrooms, because football is a pretty cerebral game in terms of like every week, there's a new game plan that, that the players have to learn. The coaches have to teach. They said, when we look at our classrooms, it doesn't look like that. Yeah, Guys are slouching back. People aren't offering answers to questions. Sometimes their eyes are closed. Nobody's writing anything down. They said, how do you do it? And I said, well, the first thing is there's no magic about the kids. Our kids are accepted by lottery. It's the teachers, and it's what the teachers are doing. There are very specific techniques and strategies that teachers use in order to get people engaged and working hard and focused on the lesson. Um, they said, could you teach our coaches what you teach your teachers? And I basically said some version of like, I have no idea, but boy, wouldn't that be fun to try and figure it out? And so what we did was we set it up where myself and a couple of the other leaders at KIPP Philadelphia, I mean, actually a guy from Philly who is at KIPP Houston joined us because he's a huge Eagles fan. When I told him about this, he's like, I want in. <laughs> um, and so we went and we did basically first year teacher coaching with some of the Eagles position coaches. Oh, wow. And so we made it a volunteer basis, right? And so some coaches said, yes, I want that teacher coaching. And others said no. But the nice thing about that was now we have a control group. And so what they do in the NFL, or at least with the Eagles in this era, I think every NFL team does it. But basically, they video every single practice play and every obviously every single game play. And they assign a grade to every player on the field. And that grade comes down to, there's two grades, actually. One is did you do the right assignment? The second is, did you win that assignment, right? And so you know if, if, when you're watching this video, was the wide receiver supposed to run to the left or to the right? And if the wide receiver is supposed to go left and he actually ran right, then he gets the bad grade, right? He gets the X. So we were able to actually track as we provided teacher coaching for position coaches for this NFL team. We were able to track how much better do their players get in terms of missed assignments. Can we decrease the number of missed assignments on the football field based on the intervention being the teacher coaching that we provide for these teachers. And the, again, the beautiful thing is we had a control group. So about half the coaches worked with us, half the coaches didn't. And we were able to prove that our teacher coaching intervention yielded fewer mental mistakes than the coaches who weren't receiving uh, the intervention. 
And so we said, wow, we're actually, we want to be on to something here. Teaching coaches how to be teachers in much the same way that an ed school would or that a, a charter uh, organization would helps coaches coach better and helps players perform better on the field. And then, of course, as I mentioned a moment ago, Chip got fired. <laughs> and when Chip got fired, everything that we were doing sort of went out the window. Oh, no. But the thing that happened was a couple of the two of those individuals, Josh and James, landed at the Cleveland Guardians. Now, these were not football people. These were sports people. You know, it was Chip's chief of staff and I think his, like, director of player development. So the two of them ended up over at the Guardians. And so they called me right as I was exiting Kip. And they were like, hey, would you be interested in helping us do something like we were doing in Philly? Would you be interested in helping us do that in Cleveland? And that was a pretty quick, yes, yes, I would be interested in doing that. Um, and so they were my second client in, in the fall of 2018. Um, and I'm still working with them today. So it's been about four and a half years now uh, entering into our fifth season together. And it's been a really fun project that has, of course, expanded well beyond just that basic teacher coaching we were doing at the beginning. And now I'm helping to lead other initiatives that sort of like uh, are related to education and teaching and learning. Yeah. Give me another example, like as it relates to the Guardians, like... So we talked about training the coaches to teach effectively. What else are you doing, you know, over there? Well, part of what I'm doing is I'm, I'm their leaders. So coordinators, directors, people at that level, they need to teach their people what it is that they know, right? So there's new technologies coming in all the time. There's then from those new technologies, there's new analysis that comes. And what we see is that there is lots of different ways to describe what you're looking at if you're an analyst, or if you're a scout in the field, or if you're a coach, or if you're a, a coordinator. And so one of the things that I'm working with is helping our leaders in the different, they call them domains, like the hitting domain, the pitching domain, our leaders in those domains, how can we help them to become better teachers so that they can teach the analysts what a good assessment should look like, for example, as they're scouting some college athlete. So it's it's a lot, a lot of it is directly related to the work of just like professionals will do better if they're better at explaining what it is that they are able to do. And again, the key, of course, is to go beyond just the good explanation. And so what I've developed is what I call the idea model for teaching and learning, which is just a way to teach people who weren't trained as educators through a sort of like a clever acronym um, that I can call it clever because Dan Coyle thought of it after watching my presentation when there was no acronym. He's like, you need an acronym. I'm like, I know, help. <laughs> so we put together the acronym uh, for what's called the idea model. And again, for somebody like yourself, education background, seem the most basic thing in the world, but for somebody who's not trained as a teacher, it's like, oh, okay, I didn't realize maybe I was supposed to do that. And so idea very simply stands for inform, and that might make sense, right? That's, but I think that's where people maybe think teaching ends. Like if I can explain it really well, if I can show you just the right training video, then that's enough, right? You can do it now, right? If I explain to you how to fly an airplane, like you can go fly that airplane, right? Maybe, probably not. That's not the way our brains work. So the I is inform. That has to be part of it, but that's not all. The D stands for develop, right? So we have to build on prior knowledge. We have to do things like spiraling and go back and teach content again and again, but let's expand upon what it is that we taught last time a little bit. It has to hang if what we're doing doesn't build in terms of like a Bloom's taxonomy, right? So like, hey, first we have to know the definitions of these things. Then we can start to analyze it. Right. Um, if you just go right to the analysis, but we're we're using different words to mean the same thing, then we're going to have we're not going to be able to do that properly. So learning develops. Learning also engages. And so, again, back to the Eagles example, uh, the coaches 
who were explaining the new plays up in the front, sometimes they weren't asking any questions. Hmm. They were just talking at the players for 45 minutes. Well, that's not really teaching. That's informing. Hmm. And that's important. But you have to go beyond that. So ask. try asking a question. <laughs> try having people talk to each other. Try having people, you know, get up and show me a swing, right? Like show me what hinge looks like versus squat. And so engages. And then excellent teaching assesses and adjusts. That's the A. So, hmm. okay. You've explained it to me now, and we, I've engaged you, and we built it on yesterday's lesson. Now, can you do it? I always tell people, if I say that I taught my son how to swim, and, you know, like, look, yeah, yeah, we spent all summer working on it. Like, you can, you can do the arms, and you can kick, and it's great. Then, And you want to know if I actually did teach him how to swim, what would you do? You know, pick him up, and you throw him in a pool. If he sinks to the bottom, does that mean that I taught him? No, you, you talked about some stuff, right? Like we worked on it together, maybe, but I have to earn the right to say I taught him how to swim. And the way that I earn the right to say that I taught it is that he can do it. And so we assess, can he do the thing? Can she do the thing that I just taught? And then we adjust. If they can't do it, well, now what? If you just say, well, it's their fault, it's on them. Uh, you're not, that's not, that's not teaching. You don't get to do that. You have to say, okay, how am I going to change the way that I'm teaching this? So that now my student, my colleague, my athlete, my whatever, um, so that now they can do it. So that idea model is sort of the basis of, of the coaching work that I do with, with these coaches. So do you do more than the Guardians right now? Or are you doing other sports teams right now? Yeah. So I've in the past, I've worked with the Brooklyn Nets, Penn State football, Virginia Tech football, wow. one or two other smaller ones. And and then my second sports client right now is the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee. Oh, amazing. And do you, do you find that the coaches are pretty receptive to this? Like, are you starting to see them look like teachers, like true teachers after a while? So the short answer is Yes. Like there are some folks who are now like really good at teaching and it's been really fun to support them uh, on that trajectory. I get guys emailing me about like lesson planning, except that, you know, they're, they're practice planning, right? But it's lesson planning. I got guys using words like scaffolding and spiraling and spacing and interleaving. It's really fun to see just like, just like when I was teaching fifth graders math, man, it's like, it's fun to see the light bulbs go off of people over people's heads. Now, again, it's not for everybody. It usually works best when it's totally opt-in because somebody says, hey, you know, this is an area where maybe I'm already good and I could do better or I don't know anything or, you know, whatever it is that prompts that that, that curiosity and, and drives these constant learners to say, like, this is the thing I want to try. And I think the other thing I have to do is I have to be really explicit that, like, their coaching is more than being a great teacher. You have to have content expertise. Mm -hmm. you know, these guys I've worked with at the Guardians, they practically all have like master's degrees in biomechanics and they know more about skill acquisition than like, you know, an auto mechanic knows about how to fix a car. So like what I bring to them is a very specific focused set of expertise that can help them as, you know, just another tool in their toolbox. And so I think if I can establish myself that way, then the people who are okay with that, then like they... I watch them get better and it's really fun. Hmm. Um, There's some people who are like, wait, but you never played volleyball. How are we going to, what, what can I learn from you? And to that person, I have to sort of respectfully say like, okay, got it. Like if that's what you think, then okay. And so what other industries are you training leaders in right now? So right now it's education, like what you'd expect. Yep. Um, and then it's this sports. So I sort of have two books of work. And so you're coaching other networks of schools and school systems. Yeah, that's right. And some nonprofits that support schools. So I, I, I coaching like an executive director of a local nonprofit. Um, and I've done a little bit of work with that uh, through a local foundation that sort of connects me with some of their grant recipients. 
uh, to provide coaching to some of their sort of early stage entrepreneurial nonprofit leaders. And then I have a, another anchor client uh, as a local charter network where I've coached their principals. I've coached members of their C team because they're, they're a network of schools. So people who are in their, their executive leadership. And now I'm, I'm doing some really fun work doing some, some coaching with their sort of like two layer down leaders, like their emerging leaders, which is really some, some of the most fun that I get to have is working with these like 27 year old Folks who remind me of myself, yeah, um, they're just they're just already much better at it than I was, and much more, much you know, much much better in many ways uh, than I was. So, what are you seeing now from these leaders that has challenged any assumptions you had when you left to work the first time? Like, are you seeing new models of leaders and new practices in schools, or is it roughly the same formula or? secret sauce that that you saw when you were running a network yourself? I, I want to say it's much of the same, right? It is. This is still about, for young leaders especially, this is about some of that won't, what got you here won't get you there. The idea that like I had a recipe for success in the classroom and now that I'm a first year assistant principal, like these things aren't working. And so how do I sort of challenge my assumptions about how I win um, or how I succeed, how I thrive? And like, can I grow and, 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 and build on those lessons, but also like adapt to the new sitting, the new setting that I find myself in? So a, a lot of the challenges are, are kind of the same. I think certainly the pandemic has had an impact in schools that can't be understated. You know, the, the network of schools that I support did every single thing that they could to get computers into every single child's hands so that they could do remote learning when they could, but internet accessibility and just like, you know, lack of accountability, some, some family dynamics and home dynamics that are complex led to really sort of sporadic attendance on this remote learning that they had to do for the better part of a year. Combining that with teachers having to learn a whole new skill of teaching over this, uh, teaching in this way. Like, I think that we see that the network that I support is probably better off than so many, better off certainly than the local school districts because they were able to pivot more quickly and they they did some really good stuff, but also the kids are just well behind. A third grader in 2022 knows less than a third grader in 2019. Yeah. And that third grader in 2019 knew less than the third grader did in the more affluent neighborhood. And the cycle just sort of continues. It's just like everyone's taking like half a step to a full step back. It feels like. Yeah. Are you seeing that? The effects of this uh, low unemployment environment in schools, like I, there's some school leaders I talk to who are just like, it's never been harder to find people to do this work when you combine all the stresses of the pandemic and the retirements that that pushed with, you know, some of the vibes of the work. And then you add the employment picture. I'm hearing from a lot of leaders that it's never been harder to find people or good people or any people. Yeah, I'm seeing that with my clients. Um, and also I, I sit on, you know, a couple of boards and I'm, I'm, uh, the boards that, I, that I'm working with are having the same thing. Vacancies stay vacant longer. Yeah. And, you know, you're dealing with people leaving the profession, you know, in ways that you necessarily weren't before the pandemic. The sample size is a little bit small. Yeah. But it's, it's, not, it's not nothing. Whether this is a blip or, and it'll rebound or whether this is now a new reality, I don't know that. I have a perspective on that yet. I do think that we're that folks are challenged to think differently about that sort of teacher sustainability. I mean, we were thinking about it back then, don't get me wrong. The combination of like this generation of teachers who are coming up and there's been much written and much said, and I won't go, in, go into all that about this generation, right? Yep. But like the idea that, yes, comp will always matter and paying people what they're worth will always matter and what they feel like they're worth. But there are some pieces around like some of the, the fringe benefits 
that have never been more important. And so, you know, the ability to, you know, not just sick days, but like mental health days and the ability to work from home. If you're a teacher, it's, I don't, you know, I don't think anybody's really got a handle on how you do that. Um, but even for like the central office staff or non, non-student facing roles, like how you handle work from home, how you handle benefits and, and, and other aspects of, of the fringe benefits, uh, the work. Schools are going to have to get on top of that. And the ones I think that, that many are, but I think there are some who are slower and that's going to hurt them. Well, final question for you. Who's a leader out there that isn't like super well known that you hold up as a model? Like when you think about, you know, what, what, what makes a great leader? It doesn't have to be in schools, doesn't even have to be in sports, but it could be just somebody who inspires you or has inspired you. I'll give a fictional answer and then I'll give a, a non-fiction answer for you. When I was leading our Emerging Leader Program at KIPP, I used to have people build like their book, uh, their, their, their sort of like their library of like leadership books, right? And, you know, people would say like, Good to Great by Jim Collins and, you know, the, the ones you'd expect. And one year, somebody said, my favorite leadership book is Horton, Here's a Who. <laughs> um, and I said, uh, I thought it was a joke. I didn't know what to say. And I was like, all right, so so why? And then they broke it down, right? And they said, think about Horton, Here's a Who for a second. Horton is made aware of a dire crisis that nobody else wants to, to know about. They, are, they, they now have a decision to make, right? Like, am I going to put myself out there, extend myself, Extend my personal credibility, potentially my, my, my well-being. Am I going to put it all on the line to do the right thing for this group of people who are unable to do this themselves? Um, and Horton makes the difficult decision. Yes, I am because I now cannot unsee the thing that I have seen. And so I'm going to do the hard thing and I'm going to put it all out there and I'm going to do what I know is right, even though it's hard, even though it's unpopular. I'm going to do what's right. And then Horton does and saves all the who's and there is much rejoicing. <laughs> wasn't expecting that answer. I know, right? It's, it's such a, I wasn't expecting it either. It's a great answer. So when I think about my model of leadership, I think about Horton, right? It is, it is about listening to your people, understanding what it is that they're facing, and then not trying to put your, you know, not trying to tell them what they're, they should be worried about. And here's the solution that I've come up with to this thing, this problem that also, by the way, I came up with. But also, but really to listen to what people are need and to then at potentially great cost, meet the need. So I, I, I would say on the one hand, on my fictional answer, it's Horton. Horton's always sort of the model that I think of when I think of a great leader. On the non-fictional side, though, I'm going to call out Chris Antonetti, who, again, in some circles is not unknown, but he is the president of the, of the, of the Cleveland Guardians. And Chris, he just won, you know, executive of the year from uh, for MLB last year. So again, not necessarily not well known, but I've worked with lots of leaders in the education side. I've worked with lots of leaders in the nonprofit world. I've worked with leaders of foundations. I've worked with mayors. I've worked with, you know, elected officials. Chris is pretty special. He has real relationships with just about every single person. He remembers names and birthdays and, and the things that, that if it's the most important thing in your life, he knows that and treats it as such. He also is the one of these people who I don't know how he finds the time. You know, if I say something in a large meeting, he'll find the time to like shoot me a text or an email or even make, give me a call and say, I'm really glad you said that thing. Even if sometimes as the outside consultant, I get to say the things that are, aren't popular or maybe nobody actually wants to hear. He'll say like, thank you for saying that thing. You pushed me today. I wasn't thinking of it in those terms. Thank you. And just generally speaking, I don't think you're going to find anybody, you know, who would say anything other than like, 
you know, at the Cleveland Guardians, we like to say, like, we always do the right thing. We're always going to play fair, even if that puts us in the very minority of other MLB teams who are always going to do the right thing and are always going to play fair. So there is just this standard that is set. It's a standard of excellence, but it's also a standard of fair play and of like, you know, we've basically taken the the financial picture of Major League Baseball and the fact there are haves and have nots based on the size of your market and the fact that we are a small market team. And so we have teams that are outspending us by 10x and we we don't allow that to become like a pity party, but we say, okay, how are we going to create advantage elsewhere? How are we going to be smarter than them? How are we going to be more efficient than them? How are we going to do more with less? And all that culture that he has established and the other leaders at the Guardians, but he's at the top. That culture that he has established is a really impressive one. And it's really fun to be sort of this insider outsider for them where I get to see that firsthand on a, on, a, on a pretty regular basis. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. This has been super illuminating. Thanks, Robbie. It's been a lot of fun. Best of luck to you.